0: Romans eight thirty one to thirty four, hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. On December 2nd, 1823... President James Monroe gave his annual address to the Congress and the United States was flexing some of its increasingly big muscles on the world stage and he gave this report and what he reported there became what's called the Monroe Doctrine. And the Monroe Doctrine basically was a shot across the bow of the European powers. And it was a warning to them, and it was saying to them, we take a special interest in our side of the world, the Americas, the Western Hemisphere, and don't intervene in our side of the world, or if you do, you need to count on dealing with us as well. Now, seen in its best light, it's the United States looking out for some of its smaller neighbors and protecting them from intervention from world powers. Seen in its worst light, it is for an intervention on the part of the United States in the lives of some of those smaller American nations. It was, in its worst light, U.S. meddling in other nations' business. And in its best light... It was giving these smaller nations the opportunity to say to the old world powers, look, if you deal with us, you're going to have to deal with the United States as well. If you want to be against us, you will also be against the United States. In other words, if the United States is for us, you better be careful about being against us. Now, I want to be careful here because... The United States and God are very, very dissimilar. But I want you to see that the argument of the Monroe Doctrine has something in common with the argument of this text, without the mixed motives of the United States for protecting our smaller neighbors. And the argument is very simple. If God is for us, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And we're going to see in this text just how very for us God is, and specifically what God did for us to be in favor of us. Now, this is, the, this is one of the seven times in this letter, we're in Romans chapter 8, Uh, verses 31 to 34. This is one of seven times in this letter where Paul asks the question, what then shall we say? What shall we say? And this is a question that he uses as he's going on in a logical argument. So he presents some, some truths. And then he says, how should we react to these truths? What shall we say in the light of these things? Now the question for us here is, what are these things? Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? And there are a couple different options for these things. We could think that this is, up to this point, a summary of what we've seen in Romans chapter 1 all the way up to this point. These things, all these things that we've considered, especially in Romans chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And what are these things? In the light of what things? What does he talk to us about in this letter so far? Well, some of the things are these. Acceptance with God through Jesus Christ based on Christ's work, not on our work. Faith in Jesus as a gift. Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom from condemnation before God. Adoption as beloved children. The gift of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness of our sins. It could be all of these. And what shall we say in the light of all of these things, these benefits that God has given us in Christ? Or, it may simply follow on, verses 28 to 30, right before this, where we have a rather well-known text in Roman, and we know, verse 28, that... But however we look at it, this, this section from 28 to 30 is really a summary of everything, because he goes back before the beginning of time, what God foreknew and what God foreplanned, all the way up to the end of time, the glorification. And so here we have all of history and beyond eternity as well, summed up. And the question is, what should we say? What should we say to these Things. How shall we respond? Well, curiously, Paul doesn't give us a direct answer. He gives us a series of more questions. And so he answers his big question with a series of questions. And we're going to look at uh, some of those questions today. And the first question is this. The first question is in verse 31. Who can be against us? Now, if we ask that question in in um by itself without reference to anything else in isolation from everything else we might say well i got a, a kind of a long list of people who could be against us um i could have co-workers against me i could have family members against me i could have neighbors against me i could have bosses against me i could have teachers against me i could have students against me i could have Foreign enemies against me. I could have criminals against me. I can think of all sorts of people who could be against me. So, in isolation, this question could have a number of different answers. But you'll see here what he does. He puts this question not in isolation, but in the context of a fulfilled condition. And he says, "If this, then who can be against us? And what is the condition? What is the what is the fulfilled condition? If." God is for us. Who can be against us? You see, that's a different question than simply who can be against us. If God is for us, if God is favorable to us, then, in the light of that fulfilled condition, who could possibly be against us? You see how this works? That that, that fulfilled condition puts all of the other possible enemies in their place. And they are as nothing in comparison to the favor of God. So what is the implied answer here? It's not stated. The implied answer here, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, no one. No one. So that's the the first question and the first implied answer here. Well, then he goes on to a second question. Verse 31. And this question is a positive question. And the question is, will God give us all things Will God grant us as a favor? Will God give us all things? And once again, if that question were asked in isolation, we might doubt, because we might look at our lives right now and say, well, I don't have all things now, so how can I be sure what God will do in the future? If I don't have all things, it seems that I'm lacking some things now, then, then can I be sure that in the future He will give all things to me? once again, it's not a question in isolation. It's a question with a fulfilled condition. And what does it say in verse 32? What is that fulfilled condition? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously grant us, as a gift, all things? So this is different, isn't it? It's not a a theoretical question. Will God give us all things, or will he not give us all things? Well... The, the, the condition that's been fulfilled already is that He has already granted us the greatest gift of all. And this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God, if God has already granted us His own Son, and if He did not spare His own Son, and by the way, the language here, especially in a a Jewish reader's mind, or if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the language here would remind us of the Old Testament when Abraham was called upon to sacrifice his own son. And he didn't, in the end, have to do that because God provided a substitute, but in the Greek version of the Old Testament... God says, because you have not spared your son, your only son. And he says that twice. You have not spared your son. But now we find that that incident was pointing forward to another son who would not be spared. And there would be no one to come in, like in the place of Isaac. There would be no substitute to come in instead of God's son because that son is the substitute. He is the one whom God has given for us. And so here's the question. If God has already given us if he's already given us his most precious son, then is it conceivable that he will withhold from us any lesser things? And of course the answer is of course not. He has always given a, already given us the greater, which is more than a pledge that he will give us all good things. Now, the next question is a legal question. And here, Paul introduces, not for the first time in Romans, language from the law court, in verse 33. The question is, who shall bring any charge, or any accusation, against God's elect? Against God's elect. And by the way, I want you to notice, before we go on, that everything in this text, he he uses the word sometimes all, and he speaks of us all, but who is this? all. Well, here we find out. It refers to the elect. Will anyone bring any charge against God's elect? And some people have gotten very concerned about this idea of the elect. Who are the elect? But in the, but in the scripture, it's not some mysterious thing that we can't figure out. It's something that we can identify. We can know who the elect are. We can know that we are elect. And how can we know that? Well, go back to verse 30. And those whom he predestined, that's something we don't know about, something he's done in eternity past, he is also called, that is in history, in our lives, he has called us by the preaching of the gospel. And it says, and those whom he has called, he also justified. And if we read earlier in Romans, we find that justification is by faith in Jesus. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, you see how we've gone from eternity past the secret counsels of God into our own lives, into our own history? God predestined from before the ages, and then He calls us through the preaching of the gospel. We hear the gospel preached about Jesus died and risen again. And if we respond to that in faith, we are declared righteous, justified, and we are, in fact, glorified. And so what are we? We are the elect. You see, we are the elect, not because of anything that we have done, because of His calling and the response to that calling. And so, this whole text applies to those who have responded to that call. And if you haven't responded to that call, then you want to know if you're elect? Well, it's simple. Respond to the call and believe in Jesus and know that you are among those whom He calls, justifies, and glorifies. Now, the future reference here probably refers to the final judgment. Verse 33, Who shall, in the future, who will, bring any charge against God's elect? And there used to be, in our culture, more of a concern about the day of judgment, more of a concern about what would happen in that last day. But uh, there's not so much concern, perhaps, today, but it's something that is very clear in Scripture. That, that there will be a final day when we will present ourselves before God. And the question is, who will bring a charge against, against us? And once again, we could say, well, I can think of a whole lot of people who could stand up on that day and point their finger at me. I can think of a number of people. I can think back with, with pain in my heart about those whom I have harmed in this life. Those who legitimately have something against me and who could stand up on that day and, and bring an accusation Against me. Or, there is that one called the accuser of the brethren. Satan, the devil himself. He is the slanderer. He is the one whose, whose job is to bring an accusation against God's people. And so, I might fear that, that he would stand up on that day. Or, if I were called to the witness stand to testify against myself, my own conscience... My own conscience would be a witness against me, and my own conscience could bring many accusations against me on that day. And so I might think about that great day with with fear and trepidation. And this is the question, who will bring a charge in that day against those whom God has chosen? And once again, we have here a fulfilled condition. And the fulfilled condition is this. It is God who justifies. And so we have legal language going on here. Bring a charge, legal language. Justify, legal language. And what is justification in Romans? It is the declaration of legal innocence. It is what the judge does when he pounds the gavel at the end of the trial and says, not guilty. And it says here that it is God who justifies. Now, that is exceedingly good news. Because on that great day, before whom will we be standing? We will be standing before the judge. The judge of all. And it is God, it is that judge, who justifies. He is the one who declares innocent. He is the one who declares not guilty. Now, if it's God who declares us innocent, then no one will be able successfully to bring a charge against us on that day. Even if one were to give a charge on that day, even if the the, the accuser of the brethren were to do that, or even if our own consciences were to blurt out accusations against ourselves, or if our neighbor were to point to us and say, he is guilty, the judge has overruled Because he has already rendered a verdict in our case if we have responded to the gospel message in faith and received this gift of justification, this gift of being declared righteous before God. You see, the reason, the reason no one will be able to bring a charge against us is not because there is nothing against us, rather, but because there is this verdict has already been pronounced. Let's think of a courtroom situation. We've either been in those, or we've seen them on TV or in movies. We've seen how they work. The, the, the verdict is declared, and the, the court is dismissed. It is all over. And then someone comes running in. A witness for the prosecution comes running in and says, uh, Your Honor, I have something to say against this, this defendant. And what will the judge do? The judge will say, it's already been decided. The verdict has been declared. And so, there is nothing more to be said for or against this defendant. And now, justification as something that has already taken place is is that verdict that's been pronounced. And so, on that great day... It's not that there is going to be some uh, new verdict pronounced, but whatever verdict is pronounced in our lives now will be the verdict that is pronounced on that day. It is God who justifies now, so that in that day no one will be able to bring and make a charge stick against us. So here again, we have the question if God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer? No one. And also now we have this question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect if God is the one who justifies? What's the answer? No one. Now, because justification, declaration of legal innocence, and condemnation, that's the next word we come up with here, condemnation, declaration of legal guilt, are opposites. We have the fourth question as a follow-up question to the third question in verse 33 still. Or verse 34. Who is to condemn. Who is the one who will condemn? Again, once again, we might think of many possible ones. Sometimes we condemn ourselves. Others condemn us. We might think of the adversary as as one who could condemn us. Who will condemn us? But there is another fulfilled condition here. In addition to the fact that God is the one who justifies, He has done that justification On the basis, on the basis of certain events that are unrepeatable and can never be overturned. You see, this is not some sort of willy-nilly capricious declaration of legal innocence before God. This is a declaration based on some facts, some things that have happened once and for all that can never be overturned. And we find those events in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God. These are these these events, these definitive events on which God bases this declaration of innocence before Him. And so, this is not just God sweeping our sins under the rug. This is God dealing with our sins once and for all. And how did He do that? Well, here we have it. We have the Gospel. And what is the Gospel? The good news? It's that Christ died. More than that, He was raised and he is at the right hand of God where he intercedes for us. And each one of these details is connected with this declaration of righteousness. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 3, it says, through Jesus' death, God condemned sin. If you look at Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it says that he was raised for our justification. If you look at Hebrews chapter seven, verse twenty three, it says, or verse twenty-five, it says that he sat down at the right hand of God, where he always intercedes for us. And if you look at first John chapter two, verse one, it says, if you sin and you are a believer in Christ, you have an advocate with the Father, you have a counselor with the Father, you have an attorney, you have a lawyer with the Father, and who is that attorney? It is the very one who died for sins, it is the very one who rose from the dead, it is the very one who ascended into heaven and sat down in that seat of power to intercede for us, to represent us always. And so, on that great day, when we present ourselves before God, either at our death or in that final day, when we present ourselves before God, if we are believers in Christ, then our advocate will still be there. Our our attorney will still be representing us there. And so, the answer to this question, who is the one who condemns in the light of the fact that Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, Jesus intercedes for us? What's the answer? No one. No one. Okay, we're going to do a review here, and this is open book, and I want to hear the answers. Okay, question number one, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is the one who justifies, who will bring a charge against us? If Christ died, was raised to the right hand of the Father, and ever lives to intercede for us, who will condemn us? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this glorious news, that if You are for us, that no one can be against us. If You justify, no one can bring a charge against us. If Christ died, was raised and ascended and intercedes for us even now, then no one can condemn us. And Lord, we we, we rehearse today, one to another, these glorious events, these glorious truths, so that we might respond in faith to Jesus today, and respond in faith to Jesus always, being numbered among your elect, being numbered among those whom you declare to be innocent before you, because Christ was declared guilty in our place and raised to Your right hand where He intercedes for us. O God, may this message take root in all of our hearts. May it go out from our lips. May it go out into the world today, that many today and each day might receive this gift of righteousness before You. And we pray this in Christ's name, who died, who rose, and who sits at Your right hand. Amen.